This is Docs in the Box podcast. A podcast about medicine, muscles, and more through the eyes of two physiatrists. I'm Dr. Amy West. And I'm Dr. Matthew Cowling. All right, Docs in the Box podcast. Uh, We've got Karen Thompson on today. A lot of our audience probably knows her from um, organizing the um, CrossFit Health Conference or the uh, CrossFit MDL1s or the DDC didactic sessions, um, but there's a lot of really cool stuff that she's been doing that she won't really offer to you right away if you don't ask her a little bit. So she's the founder of Sugar Free um, Sugar Free Revolution. So Karen, welcome. Thank you. That's such a nice intro. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. So just to get started a little bit, can you tell people, um, you know, how you got involved in sugar addiction and what that means to you? Yes. So basically what happened is um, my husband and I were running an, um, an addiction treatment facility in South Africa. Um, it was a continuum of care. So we had primary care, secondary care, tertiary care, and sober living houses. And we treated alcoholism, drug addiction, and psychiatric disorders. Um, and it was during this time and in the, you know, investigating my own um, addiction and eating disorder and things that I'd suffered from in my life and then being in the space of treating other people that I started looking at the links between sugar and um, refined carbs and you know how it mimicked the same behavior as other addictions and um, you know I started doing research on it and looked at some of the stuff that Nicole Avina was putting up out um, a lot of it was in animal models the research but it basically showed that there was a correlation between the way that people consumed sugar that that, well that rats consumed sugar and you know the way in which they consumed cocaine and that's a very big simplification of the actual research but basically it started showing that there were some parallels and that sugar had been identified as a substance that could be seen um as an addictive substance. Um, and so from there, I partnered with a professor in South Africa called Professor Tim Noakes, who pioneered the low carb movement there. Um, and he also identified that sugar was addictive and that cutting out sugar and refined carbs in someone's diet could reverse their diabetes and also help them lose weight. And so it really improved any chronic disease that anybody was suffering from. Um, and from there, we set up inpatient, outpatient, and online programs. And I wrote a book with the longest title in the history called Sugar-Free, Eight Weeks to Freedom from Sugar and Carb Addiction. And um, it became a bestseller in South Africa and then later on in the UK as well. And then from there, we moved to the US and um, I started working for CrossFit. Wow, so it's quite quite the journey. Um, so how did you initially, so you, you were running this treatment facility originally and so how did you make that connection with Tim Noakes? Like, how did you make that link? Had you start working with him? Um, so what happened was that my mother had been a world champion water skier and Professor Noakes had been uh, like an incredible marathon runner in South Africa. And so South Africa is not a huge country. And so all the like the top people in different as like in different parts know each other. Um, and so she'd known Tim from her years um, being a really great athlete. And uh, so I had seen him on a TV program talking about sugar and addiction. And I asked if she could put us in touch and she did. And I went to go see him and I was like, Hey, you know, I really think that sugar is addictive. Um, and I think we should do something together. And he was like, I'm in. 
let's do it. It is absolutely, it's, it's wreaking havoc. He'd just been diagnosed as diabetic. He like um, brought forth the, this idea that you have to um, carbo load before doing any type of um, endurance exercise. And so he basically said that everything that he'd been promoting over the last 20 years was completely wrong. And he was willing to go back and reassess his beliefs and see what really worked. So looking at it in kind of two different ways, one thing I think is super interesting is from our standpoint in the medical community, the way that we look at addiction, things like alcoholism and drug addiction, um, we almost, we, you know, we view them negatively, right? You know, we think, oh, people are addicts, alcoholics, but we never consider sugar addiction and the impact that that has. And there's no sense of, you know, feeling that it's wrong for people to be addicted to sugar and that being the cause of obesity, even though it's a huge cause of harm for people, it's something that we just sort of bypass and don't lump into those. But what's really interesting about what you've been doing is that, you know, it's bringing light to the fact that sugar addiction is a real thing. It's a thing that's causing a big problem. And then you're seeing, you know, like Tim Noakes looking at people who are over consuming. And then when they stop the health benefits that they get, um, you know, far exceed that from, you know, just abstaining from other things. So that's super cool. I think so as well. I mean, <laughs> I feel like with so much like obesity and diabetes, not so much diabetes, but obesity and so many of the chronic diseases, there's always like an underlying mental health component to it. Um, that I think is often overlooked. And we don't necessarily uh, seek help when we are experiencing sadness or depression or anxiety, um, you know, but it something else has to manifest for that to happen. And um, so, you know, with addiction, um, addiction to drugs and alcohol, it often brings us to a rock bottom where we've lost family, financial staff, our health is suffering greatly and we have to ask for help. But with something like sugar addiction and food addiction, it kind of is just glossed over because there is no, often no real crisis that brings the person to their knees, but it's a long-term suffering from, you know, these chronic diseases that you suffer from because of your nutritional, um, you know, what you're doing, what you're eating, your lifestyle. And what led you to work in the addiction space in general? Because it's not, it's not, it's could be a pretty challenging place to try to, to thing to try to address. Um, you know, I think that my own history of suffering from addiction, I suffered from an eating disorder for most of my life that I can remember. Um, it started like my first memory is the age of four, where I would like consume excessive amounts of sugar to make me feel better. And, you know, there's that self-soothing and looking for this external fix to like this internal problem, which still happens to me at times. Um, and then, you know, moving throughout my life and, and starting to look at other like st starting to become addicted to other things like uh, alcohol and then later drugs as well. And my own journey of landing up in rehab and spending nine months there and um, realizing that the underlying component of all this manifestation of this, the alcoholism and the drug addiction really was based in an eating disorder and how my eating disorder really had started with my addiction to sugar at the age of four. Um, and so from there, I went into recovery, got into recovery. I got my degree in psychology and I always just had, have had this like intensely deep desire to help people. Uh, if I could just like hug everyone better, I would be so happy, you know, but I have this like intensely deep desire to, to make people recognize the beauty in themselves. 
you know, being somebody who has went through the process, I feel like that better equips you to help educate people. And one thing I think that we constantly are bombarded with is, you know, learning that people who suffer from addiction, it's a lifelong process. And a lot of times people get trapped in it because they think I can never get past this. But you're like a perfect example of somebody who not only got over it, but then you're using it as a positive to help other people do it. So do you have any advice for people who are actually like going through addiction of whether it be sugar addiction, alcohol, other things in terms of going forward? Oh, it's, I mean, addiction so hard. I still struggle with it every day. And it's not that I want to use or that I want to act out, but I'm like highly, highly sensitive. And I feel like that's kind of a thread with all addicts. And so I feel really big feelings. My feelings are big. And sometimes they're so big that it feels like they're going to engulf me. And that's why I used to use because I couldn't deal with life on life's terms. And I didn't have the coping, the, the tools or the skills to deal with it. And so, you know, I think recognizing that addiction is not about an external substance, but it's about this like deep hole in the soul that so many of us have and not and realizing like really starting to accept that there is no external solution to this internal problem but that there is help and the help can be found in a community and in a space where where I feel loved and accepted and so I found that in the 12-step fellowship and then later I found that in the CrossFit community and so for me the CrossFit community is such a powerful community of recovery and love and respect and you know it's about being better and about encouraging each other to be better and to be healthier and um, as long as I immerse myself in that space and I allow myself to remain vulnerable and open to being helped I will be fine and I believe that that is possible for every single other person suffering from addiction like recovery is possible it doesn't go away but it definitely gets better and life can be so beautiful so how how does someone know that they're addicted to sugar because I think with other things it, it's a little more obvious or people right. other people tell them that you know other people say you have a problem whereas I think right. so sugar is so ubiquitous you know in our world in our and yeah. all the menus that you know where we order food from and whatnot but so I don't how would someone say how would someone recognize that or how would someone else recognize that in somebody else because I think it's a little more insidious well, I think, you know, I love the, the definition of addiction where um, addiction is the continued use of a substance or a behavior despite the negative consequences. So, um, you know, you continue, continuously use something despite like this, these immense consequences that it, that it has. So you're diabetic, but you can't stop eating sugar despite it being an absolute killer. Like it literally, you have to like inject yourself with insulin just to bring your, your blood sugar down and, and just so you can survive. And you're obese, but you can't stop eating despite not being able to walk. I mean, how harsh do the consequences have to be for you to recognize that cutting something so simple out is gonna make such a big difference? Yet you cannot do that because you're addicted. Um, and I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, it's when you do something despite these insanely negative consequences and you just keep doing it. Well, and it's hard because like I was kind of mentioning earlier, we don't have people saying like, hey, you have diabetes and you need to stop eating so much sugar and you probably are addicted to it. We just don't recognize those things as being simultaneous. For some reason, we can't put two and two together in the medical community and say, hey, listen, this is the cause. We need better treatment than just telling the patient, you know, to stop eating sugar. We have to look at things like cognitive behavioral therapy and other programs that they, that they can get into to help them to actually stop doing that because it's not as easy as you have diabetes, stop eating processed food. If it were, everybody would just do it, right? 
Right, absolutely. And I think, you know, this. we live in such a toxic food environment where we are constantly exposed to these chemically engineered food products that were that are engineered like by engineers to make us want more. Um, you know, they've identified the bliss point in the in the brain, which basically once triggered, like leaves you not feeling full, but you want more and more and more. And that's why we can sit and have a whole bag or packet or whatever of Oreos and not feel full despite consuming thousands of calories because these foods have been chemically engineered to make us addicted to make us want more and more and more and never have us feeling satisfied or satiated i think also framing sugar um you know sugar or diabetes as 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 uh, sugar addiction also sort of shifts the responsibility if you will or shifts the um the idea that you know well just just stop eating it and just make the choice not to eat sugar versus your brain is chemically wired to need this and we need to find ways around that because your brain is sort of overpowering your your free will almost totally and i think just you know focusing on like the neurotransmitters and what happens to them when we start eating sugar and how it leads to um, you know, the same thing with addiction, where you need more and more um, to to satisfy that that urge and to release the same amount of dopamine. So you're going to have to like the tolerance builds up as well, where you eat, need to eat more and more of the substance to have the same effect. And, um, you know, even though it's not the same high as, say, you would get from 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 doing a line of coke, um, you know, the, it doesn't mean that the consequences are any less. Just because the external manifestation isn't as bad doesn't mean that what's happening inside your body is any less bad. Um, and yeah, so I agree with your thing about diabetes and sugar addiction. And I think just once again, realizing that um, we've been led to believe that that we can do nothing. Like we have to look for this external fix. We have to focus on medication and somebody else has to fix the problem. And like the buck stops with me. You know, the, you know, I'm the only one that can create lasting change as long as, and as soon as I have the knowledge, like I can't just turn my back on that. Like then it starts being my responsibility to create the change every single day, even when it's really hard. And one thing you've mentioned in the past, I think it was on um, the Pursuing Health podcast was, um, you know, just knowing yourself. And I think CrossFit can sometimes attract people with addictive personalities, right? Because we like to really push ourselves and get that big rush from, you know, exercising and that can be healthy. Um, But then also it brings together a lot of people who, you know, they really can't have just one, right? And I've known my entire life, I've been like that. No matter what, if you put, you know, like a box of cereal in front of me or anything, I'm going to eat it all. And I've always had this problem of just going to extremes, all or nothing. And that's definitely a personality type. And understanding that about yourself, I think is really important. Absolutely. I mean, there's a saying in like AA, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, one is too many and a thousand never enough. And that's the truth for me as well. Like if I start drinking, I can't stop. You know, if I start, if I had to do drugs, like, I don't think I would be able to stop either. Like, if I start eating jelly bellies, which literally are my weak point, I will buy a bag and I'll be like, I'll only eat the orange ones because they're my favorite. And then I'll, I'll put it away. And it was like, it's like literally like those little jelly bellies are calling me to eat them. And then they're like, oh, you know, we feel so left out. It's crazy. Like, it's crazy the stuff that happens in my brain um, when I have that exposure. And if somebody recognizes, so, I mean, the first step in the process is recognizing that you are addicted, which in and of itself is difficult, but once someone recognizes that, or if like we as physicians recognize that somebody has this, like, then what's, what's the next step? Like, how do you, 
what's the first step in, in getting out of that? So the first step definitely is the admission and acknowledgement that you have a problem or that this person has a problem, that they are using a substance that has more negative consequences than good consequences, like, and that their health is being affected because of what they're eating. Um, and then it's admitting that they, they're powerless, that, you know, that one is too many and a thousand is never enough, that there is no way that I can eat this moderately, that there is no way that I can just have one piece or that there is no way that I can... Um, you know, there is no such thing as moderation for me. As an addict, I cannot do moderation. I've tried so many times, I've failed every single time. So it's recognizing for myself, like what works for me. Um, so I'm powerless over sugar, my life has become unmanageable. And then realizing that I need help, like I need a community of people to support me because only in a community can I get better. When I feel isolated and alone, that's when I want to eat. That's when I want to, like, that's when I can hide. But when I'm accountable to others, when I'm trying to help others be better as well, that's when I start recovering. Um, and so it's about finding a supportive community where you can be the very best version of yourself, where you have the support to eat good food, where you are accountable, where um, you have the space to be better. And that community aspect, I think, is a really important thing, just finding other like-minded individuals. I know that you have went to a lot of conferences, even outside of CrossFit, you know, um, you know, metabolic health. And I, I know that I see all the time on social media, you know, you're hanging out with some really cool people who are doing some awesome things. So I just have a question about, you know, diets. Is there any particular diet that you have found um, that can really help? I know that, you know, there's ketogenic carnivores becoming really popular. What are your thoughts? So I used to be like, so like, oh my gosh, the only thing that's going to help anybody in the world is low carb. And like, unless you do low carb, like you're lost. And I've really come, like I've, I've changed so much. I really now believe that it's up to each one of us to figure out what works for us. And the only way we do that is through experimenting. Having said that, and I'm doing like these CGM experiments uh, constantly, like I'm constantly self-experimenting. You know, the one thing that... Um, that really works for me is the carnivore diet like not you know eating meat only and because it takes away any of the like the, the the noise in my head of what to prepare and how to prepare it and because that can become too much for me where I'm just like I'm out like this is just too much responsibility to create all these different foods to meal prep on a Sunday like are you joking like I can't do this is just too much and so eating only red meat is so simple because I only eat when I'm hungry there's no chance my body can overeat a steak like I'm not just going to keep eating a steak because it's going to fill me up um and then what I learned from that was that, you know, when I was testing my, my blood glucose, like the best diet for me that kept my blood glucose like between 80 and 90 at any given time was carnivore. Like that is what kept me completely stable. And I've been experimenting a ton over the last week, um, you know, with, with random stuff. And I used the experiment time as a time to to like act out on my sugar addiction really to be honest and I feel like shitty I feel horrible I can feel how my moods are going up and down and it's crazy how sensitive my body is to like food and any external substances like even taking paracetamol or Advil or whatever you call it here like affects me right um and so the glucose monitor really has been eye-opening in looking at my own health and how my blood sugar, my blood glucose 
doesn't just affect my energy levels, but it affects my moods in a big way. And it affects my sleep and it affects so much and how different behaviors as well come into play. How when I meditate, the, the blood, you know, the blood sugar stabilizes, how when I do exercise, even though it spikes, it comes down pretty quickly and stabilizes. And um, when I'm stressed, like what happens? And so it's been great to look at myself in like a bigger picture and have like my actual body to back that up. Yeah. So for those of you that don't know what Karen's talking about is she's using a CGM <laughs> continuous glucose monitor. It attaches, it goes to the back of your tricep, right? Usually you put it on your arm. Yeah. Yep. And then it goes to your phone. Right. And so yeah. it's tracking your blood glucose around the clock. And then she's doing different experiments where she's eating different foods and just going about her life and then checking it. So one thing that's super interesting, you just mentioned stress and meditation. So you're talking about looking at your blood glucose now without even eating any food, right? These are just independent. The And how has that affected it? Um, stress, meditation, sleep, are you talking about? Yeah. So like when you meditate, for example, how does that affect the blood glucose? Oh, it, I, can, I can have, so I tried the other day. One of the biggest things that spikes my glucose is blueberries. I know, bizarrely, um, more so than ice cream. And um, it's strange and it's any store-bought fruit just doesn't agree with me and it will spike my blood sugar in a big way. And if I just have fructose, that will you know be the case. But if I have it with fat and protein, it won't be as bad. So I knew that I was going to have a really big spike with the blueberries and I decided to meditate, um, you know, as the spike was going on. And in comparison to when I didn't meditate, the, 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 the drop was a lot more significant <laughs> and I have data to prove it. So it's not like I'm just making this stuff up. It was incredible. Did any other thing surprise you about your monitoring? Did you find something that you didn't realize was happening? I think the biggest thing really was the, um, you know, fruit, just how my body is not really wired for fruit and how um, those spikes rival the spikes of like a Coca-Cola or a milkshake or any like liquid sugar that I would drink. Um, eating fruit was the same thing. And even though fruit contains fiber, it just seemed to have like a really horrible impact on my body. And I think the other thing that I recognized was I can now, when I'm starting to feel tired, I'm like, my blood sugar is spiking. Um, this is this, this tired feeling that I'm having right now is because my blood sugar is out of control and my body's trying so hard to normalize it, either bring it back up or bring it down that like, I'm tired. I can't focus. Like I just want to have a nap. Um, and so that was very interesting for me as well. But I think the biggest thing really was the fruit, like, fruit and I, and we're not friends. That's crazy. And that's something you would never think because, you know, we always learn fruit is so healthy. Fruit is so healthy. Yes. And you see people just, you know, taking down pineapple berries all the time without even, you know, thinking twice. And so to actually get that data about yourself is so important. Absolutely. And then also like the mental health benefits, like I can't even tell you enough. Like I've been feeling so down this whole week, like tearful, just ridiculous like a wreck and um I was like what else is going on in my life like there's certain things that are uncertain so I should feel a little bit all over the place but this is weird like this is not me um and I realized that I'd been experimenting with so much stuff like I had been eating a ton of sugar I had been having more carbs than usual and I know for myself right now that I need to get back onto the carnivore diet as soon as I can to help myself and can you talk a little bit more about carnivore diet exactly what it entails i mean is it just literally eating red meat and that's it or is there anything else to it <laughs> i mean 
mean, my version of it was is definitely, um, you know, the strict, uh, oh, like about a year ago, I had to have a surgery and um, I wanted to set my body up for the very best recovery from that surgery. And so the research that I had done had suggested that the carnivore diet, only eating red meat was going to keep my inflammation the lowest possible, right? And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to have the surgery. I'm going to test it out. I'm going to do strict, strict carnivore uh, red meat for 90 days. So 30 days before the surgery, I started having the red meat. I had my labs and everything done. They were better than they'd ever been. And I stayed on carnivore for the rest of the time. My recovery time was fantastic. My wounds healed so quickly. Um, I didn't have to take painkillers. I'm not saying the carnivore diet is a painkiller. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm just trying to say like how I experience this compared to other surgeries that I have had. Um, I felt good. I felt, um, you know, I felt like I had energy. I was sleeping well. My skin was clear. Um, I just felt really, really good. And so the first carnivore diet I did was very strict red meat, steak only. I think I only ate ribeye for, for, <laughs> for 90 days. <laughs> Um, and towards the end, I was kind of like, oh, I I'm, I'm craving something. And I think I had some eggs as like a cheat, but I, it was pretty strict red meat only. And um, the problem was when I stopped and I started eating carbs again, I really struggled to get back onto the carnivore diet. I really, it was a difficult thing to get back onto that in that space. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, with some of the diets that are sort of considered more like extreme, like a carnivore, even the keto, which is sort of, you know, hardcore kind of like elimination of things. The problem can result that the sustainability of something like that can be difficult. Um, so how do you, I guess it's sort of akin to addiction, right? So if you have a plan to, and then, you know, you can't really stick to it, then how, you know, what does that, what does that mean? Do you, so how, how have you found as far as like compared to other diets that you've been on? Well, I, you know, I've tried most things and, um, I, I really find anything hard to stick to. I, uh, I don't, when the going gets tough, like I want to quit. And that's like just a pattern in my life. And, um, I struggle to see, see things through and I'm a huge procrastinator and I have to recognize that that is a character defect of mine. And I need to try and figure like out the best way to kind of like work through that. Um, and so, you know, I can stick to pretty much anything. I think it's like a nine day cycle I have of being like really committed to stuff. Um, and then I fall off the wagon. And, you know, the one thing that has helped me because of the simplicity and not having to meal prep and not having to like commit, I'm petrified of commitment in life. Like I'm a commitment phobe of like, it, it's crazy. So the, the easiest diet for me to commit to has been carnivore. And now carnivore that includes any type of meat so I'll do chicken, fish, um, steak, um, eggs. There's this delicious like egg pudding, like which is like steamed eggs, like pudding thing um, that this this one girl on Instagram makes. And so I'll have that, uh, you know, if I'm feeling like a different texture, but I definitely think, and I'll have cheese as well. So I will have like a three egg omelet with bacon and feta cheese in the morning. Um, I also love the fact that I can eat. 
I hate restricting. I hate feeling that I am not allowed to have something. As soon as I feel restricted, like I want to go have it. So the carnivore diet that means that I don't have to weigh and measure my food, that I eat until I'm full, that I start to listen to my body. Um, and I know it's so nutrient dense that I'm getting absolutely everything I need, minus maybe like the vitamin C, um, which, you know, I'm not, I don't have scurvy, so I'm fine, I think. You guys are the doctors though. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So it's a huge topic in the medical community because as we've talked about on podcasts before, traditionally, um, you know, there's vegetarians and vegans um, and that's, you know, from kind of the way history has panned out. Um, and so when we talk about red meat, um, it, you know, physicians are kind of fearful of that because they're like, oh, they're, you know, we still have that idea fixed in our head that it's unhealthy, uh, which as Amy and I have talked about with many, many other people is just simply not true. Um, and you can get all, all of your nutrients from meat. And another thing that people don't realize, like you mentioned, the anti-inflammatory properties and people who have uh, GI issues like um, inflammatory bowel disease, um, things like that. Um, it can provide tremendous relief on their GI tract and put them in remission in a lot of cases. Um, and so that's just something that, you know, I've seen before. I know Sean Baker talks a lot about that um, as well. So something to be mindful of if you have patients come through and they're looking to try a different diet, it might be something if they can stick to. But as you're, as you were saying, I've tried carnivore as well. And I'm somebody, I love, you know, meat. I love eating. I eat a super high protein diet, but my problem is like you guys were saying, I'll stick to it. And then, you know, I'll go out for something on the weekend and I'll end up kind of going off the rails. And then I find it really hard to get back on it. And then there's also that cycle we get into of like beating ourselves up. You know, you feel like if you failed one day, then you're completely done. And so it's trying to convince yourself, okay, just start again. And that's the biggest thing I think. Right. And I think that's a behavioral thing. It's not so much about the actual diet. It's like, I struggle with this behavior. Like, in, in, in every aspect of my life like it's not yeah. like this is just because of the diet it's not because of the carnivore diet or the keto diet or the low-carb diet or the vegetarian diet it's just me like this is this is my pattern of behavior and I've learned to recognize that and um you know it's like that internal stuff that I have to work on and what about vegetables like what what happens during the, the me? none you're like none you just can't have any <laughs> Oh, I hate vegetables. Like, oh, you know, I'm, like, I'm the worst. <laughs> I don't know. Like, people are like, oh, I, I crave vegetables. I'm like, I don't. Like, I have no affinity for any vegetables except for the potato, you know, and um, literally like the worst vegetable to appreciate. So I, um, you know, I just, I, I do like salad. So occasionally I'll have some salad and some steak and, you know, I'll do it. But the carbs I want are refined, processed, sugary carbs, like not the vegetable carbs. Yeah. And one thing that you mentioned that I kind of want to continue to emphasize is when I started nutrition coaching, at first I thought like, oh, this is so easy because you give somebody like a nutrition prescription, right? It's like eat 400 grams of protein a day or, you know, and this many calories and then you'll be fine. But then you quickly realize that like nutrition is like 90% psychology, right? It all has to do with why we want to eat the food what our behaviors are. And it's almost like impossible on a surface level to, to treat that in somebody that you're just seeing, you know, if you're a nutrition coach, it takes like multidisciplinary care, you know, it really, yeah. it, it requires a lot of psychology. So 
Absolutely. I think, you know, it's like we live in a society where it's all about instant gratification. Like we never have to work for anything. Like we feel like something we go to the grocery store, we can have it immediately. Like there's no like, oh my gosh, I feel like this and I have to go find it and figure out where it is. And then I really appreciate it because it's not like abundantly available at all times. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. Did you get any pushback um, when you, you know, started Sugar Free Revolution and you guys started talking about high carbohydrate diets being bad? Oh my gosh, insane! Like the most crazy, the craziest stuff happened. Um, we got a ton of pushback, I think, from you know the diet dietitians um, in South Africa. They went crazy. They said we were killing everyone. Um, we, I had organized a huge low carb conference, like the biggest of its kind ever in the world. And we had like Steve Finney and Gary Taubes and Eric Westman and Jason Fung, like all come together for the first time ever in person um, at this conference in Cape Town, South Africa. And we had had it CME in South Africa. It's called CPD, CPD approved. And suddenly, you know, it was, it was, it, it had a ton of CMEs and suddenly I got a letter that our CPD, CME points had been revoked. Um, and I was like, why? Like, well, what is going on here? I don't understand. You guys approved it. And it turned out that a whole bunch of dietitians had gone to the ACCME version of whatever it is in South Africa and complained and said that our diet was going to kill people and that unless they revoked our CPD points, um, they would cause a ton of trouble. Um, and so that was super interesting. And obviously, I, you know, I'm a bit of a fighter. I don't necessarily just back down. So I was like, really, you want to fight? Okay, let's go. Let's do this. And, um, you know, just got like the lawyers involved, slapped them with a big lawsuit, and they backed off and they reinstated our points. But there was so much negative press. There is a lot of, you know, we had a ton of investigations into why we would take sugar out of people's diet when they came into rehab. Why would, why, why would we feed them a whole food diet? So all we did was we, we did, you know, pro, like the cross of prescription, meats and vegetables, nuts and seeds, little starch, no sugar. Like that's all we did. Like, how can that be wrong? But they were trying to prove that we are harming people by allowing them to only eat real food. Yeah, it's been crazy. Amy looks confused. Yeah, that sounds it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, so, so they challenged what? What were they? I guess what was their alternative? What was that? What were they? What were they proponent of? Look, they're um, highly in South Africa at that time. They were um, the Dietetics Association was highly was funded by the margarine companies and. Um, you know, the, the sugar industry. And so they said sugar in moderation is fine. And, you know, you should include it in a diabetic diet. And we were going against all of that. We were saying that food heals. And they were saying, well, the food that you're promoting doesn't really come with any great funding. So, um, you know, like we're going to go against it. They, I think it seemed that they got a lot of flack from their sponsors. Yeah, so that's classically what we've talked about before. It's just influence, and there, there's no real evidence to back up what what they're saying, right? And so now I think it's huge because we're seeing this huge change um, with research coming out, basically showing you know, you know, sugar's bad. It's pretty much toxic, you know, when it's processed, and people are you know becoming more enlightened to this. But that's just kind of a new thing, which is crazy. It's insane. And it kind of like goes in waves as well. Because if you look at like what Yudkin did in the UK, um, 
I don't even know how long ago, like in the 50s or the 60s and like, like how all his stuff's forgotten. And now we're kind of like uncovering it again. And what is the stuff going to be for, forgotten and like another generation is going to be uncovering it. It's just, um, it's worrying. It really is worrying. And, uh, you know, a C. Mahotra uh, cardiologist always, like he had this lecture about how the sugar industry was following in the footsteps of the tobacco industry. Um, and using the same playbook. And I always find that so interesting because there is such a strong correlation between the tactics that they both follow to say that their product is not addictive despite it killing millions of people. Yeah, and it's interesting because Amy, like we've talked about in here before, this year has been an eye-opening year for a lot of people who are sick, right? And who are obese and have comorbidities because now it's a very real thing. Um, and they're thinking, oh, wow, now a lot of people who've been infected with COVID-19 have very poor outcomes if they're obese and have all these comorbidities. So what can we do on the front lines to stop that, right? And, and Amy and I talk about this all the time on here, taking personal responsibility and the exercise and diet prescription is more important now than ever before. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, we, it's time for us to start taking responsibility and the easiest way you can take responsibility for your health is by choosing what you put in your mouth. Yeah, there was a quote that was something to the effect of um, don't worry so much about the masks that cover our face, but the food that goes in it. <laughs> I thought that was kind yeah. of really interesting. That's amazing. <laughs> um, that is amazing. I forgot who said it, but um, but I, I like it. Um, but anyway, uh, also, wh what are your tips for, you know, so we as physicians, we see people all the time who are very clearly addicted to sugar and we don't have a ton of time to coach them out of that. Um, other than to say, you know, Hey, you need to not eat sugar. <laughs> um, but how do, you know, how do we get patients to, to find, you know, to, to sort of, uh, work their way out of it? Who do we send them to? What do we do? I mean, you can go to my website at www. Just kidding. Um, I, you know, I. I'll put it in the show so, notes, though. <laughs> just kidding. I don't have a website. Um, um, you know, I think it's it's such a difficult, difficult. Um, I mean, you guys sit in a really difficult space. It's really hard. I think there are some amazing low carb doctors out there who are willing to take on the um, the, the sugar addicts that are out there um dietdoctor.com he's got a whole thing on sugar addiction and like a whole sugar addiction course and an incredible woman who lives in sweden who works you know specifically with the behavioral aspect of sugar addiction but i think you know the biggest thing probably in acknowledging that you have any kind of addiction is admitting it you know the first step to getting better is admitting that you have a problem and the only way you can look and acknowledge that you have a problem is by seeing the consequences of your behavior. So being able to correlate the behavior, the thing that you're doing with the negative consequences in your life. And once you have that, trying to find a supportive community. And, you know, for me, that is CrossFit in such a big way. And I don't just say that because I work for CrossFit. I say that because I found like a new freedom and a new happiness within my CrossFit affiliate. Um, very much focused on healthy living. And I think once you are able to surround yourself with a community who really wants you to be healthy. Um, you know, the sky's the limit there. But so either get them into a CrossFit affiliate 
or you know send them to the resources to the people who are um who are helping i am going to be setting up my online sugar addiction course again because it has been done for a while and i've had a lot of requests from people um and then you know people read read books like read the sugar addiction books create your own little communities of support like you know i'm so used to making my stuff everyone else's responsibility but what can we do as individuals to create communities to support each other another thing you touched on that i thought was really cool is so monitoring right so how do you know um you know if you may have a problem right so Karen is wearing a, a CGM, a glucose monitor, right? She also does um, monitoring through the Warrior Clinic, which you guys know they do lipid testing. We've had Dr. Shaka and Scott on here before. Um, and you can check a hemoglobin A1C, which is you know measuring your glucose over three months, because for some people, it's obvious that they have a problem when they're walking around and you know they're they're morbidly obese, right? But for some of us, we kind of can look healthy right? Um, and you may be going to the gym, but you're eating so poorly that your blood sugars are out of control and you don't even know. So just, you know, checking yourself, there's online kits that you can order. And, you know, even physicians like Tom Siskron, who's a urologist, will order hemoglobin A1C and his patients and do some coaching there. So looking at the kind of markers, um, you know, from a medical standpoint as well can be important. Absolutely. And then finding a physician that actually like supports a healthy lifestyle. Um, I know that in in the US, it's really hard um, to for physicians to have the time to actually spend with each patient to understand behavioral modification and what can change. And so finding a doctor like yourselves or like Julie and Danny, like Julie Fouchet, um, and Danny and them at Pursuing Health or Steady MD or Shaka or Katina or any of our CrossFit physicians, finding a doctor who really understands that behavior change is what's needed and not just prescribing another medi medication. And I'm not saying all doctors do that, but really like taking your health into your own hands. Like you have a choice. Every single thing that you do, you have a choice. It's, it's really easy for us to think that we don't have choices, but we always have a choice and so making the right choice seeing what your options are investigating those and then really investing in your own health i think something also that about sugar addiction that is challenging is that um sugar is in everything and we don't realize it so you know it's not you know people who smoke cigarettes they buy buy cigarettes and smoke the cigarettes and it's obvious what they're doing as they're doing it right but sugar is hidden in so many things that we eat and it's not just you know eating a bowl of candy it's yeah it's in everything and um that can also be kind of difficult for people to to grasp that i have a sugar problem but i'm not eating candy but you're right. eating all these other processed things that are full of sugar um, right. have you ever seen have you ever seen that sugar film Yes. Oh my yeah, God. That's a great that's example. A so that guy. Yes. <laughs> highly recommended film, but he basically, I forgot how many, like 90 days where he just eats things um, that are Granola like processed. Bars. Yeah. Healthy. Things that are supposed to be healthy, quote unquote. Yeah. And they're all full of sugar and he avoids like candy and soda and ice cream and the things that are obviously sugary, but he eats just like this processed stuff that's supposed to be healthy and like his health goes to shit in like 90 days. Right. Um, he becomes pre-diabetic. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it's just, it, it it's hard to suffer. I think for some people to even realize that they have a sugar problem because they're not just like eating spoonfuls of sugar. Right. And also bread and carbs and pasta and stuff that, that breaks down into sugar in your body. You know, it's just because it isn't sweet, naturally sweet. Um, doesn't mean that it isn't going to affect your blood sugar, which is what we're concerned about. Like what happens to your blood sugar? Because when your blood sugar shoots up, like 
inflammation, you know, there's like what happens in your body when people eat sugar. You guys can, you know, you're you're the experts here, but it's it's not good. Right. It's all about education and finding ways to educate people and the patients, you know, when they're there, how can you do it quickly? What resources can you give them? You know, teaching people to read labels in and of itself, Amy, like you're saying, is a huge thing that they can do right off the bat. It's going to make a huge difference in their health. Absolutely. Or not even having anything that has a label, like kind of like focusing on stuff that doesn't have a label that hasn't been like um, processed in any way. And that is meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, little starch, no sugar. It's simple. It actually is that simple. I, and that, I think that's one of the big things is we overcomplicate everything. Like everything has to be so overcomplicated and so like difficult and big. And you know what, if you are a sugar addict and you are overweight or you are diabetic or you are thin on the outside, but fat on the inside, you know, like just quit sugar, like try and quit sugar for 21 days and see what happens. Like what's going to happen. Like you're not going to have like a negative event. And if your life doesn't improve or your health doesn't improve in the 21 days, then go back and have all the sugar you want and more. But give it 21 days. And if you can't even stick to not having sugar for 21 days, then you have a problem with sugar. Because do you know what I mean? Like, let's face it. If you can't stop doing something for 21 days, then there's an issue there. That's actually great advice. I mean, seriously, it's something you can do, a quick experiment you can do on your own uh, just to try. And for a lot of people, they may have never even tried it. So yeah. For sure. And do it as a family. I think, you know, there's so many, like I look at my kids now with staying at home with COVID and how they put on weight and how they've become unhealthy. Like it's such a great time for us while we have this confined environment to cut out sugar and to do a family experiment. Like how cool is that? Like we have the space that we don't have access to the outside world. Like why don't we use it in a positive way as well? Yeah. You're in total control of everything all the time. Very rare. rare. Yeah, exactly. Like a fully controlled environment. Karen, can you talk a little bit about, so um, raising children and the way that uh, I think I heard you say on the Pursuing Health podcast that you kind of have a rule that you don't keep sugar in your house. And, you know, we do that here too in the apartment. I don't ever like to have sugary processed foods. And if I do get them when I'm out or if somehow somebody else brings them in, then I like to just throw away whatever, and get it out when it's done. Um, but as a kid growing up, my parents didn't really know much about nutrition. So, uh, you know, there was always processed food in the house for me to eat. And that kind of became a reward sometimes. And I think that may have to do with the relationship I have in a negative way with food now. Absolutely. It's also a way, that, mean, people, yeah. it's also a way that people show, show love to each other, I think, which is also, you know, kind of right. It's a, a way that people, thing, yep. yeah, it's like, you know, I love you. Here's a cupcake. Right. I grew up thinking that um, a Coca-Cola meant love like or security because that's what my dad gave me when he came home from work. And so I my whole life, I've like associated Coca-Cola with love and security. And so when I'm feeling like insecure and unloved, like, what do I do? I want to go to CVS and buy a Coca-Cola still. Um, And so there's like this huge like emotional connection to different products that has no meaning to anybody else but me. And I only realized it because I've done work on what it means. But it's really, really hard. Like I am having such a difficult time with my kids at the moment. They have no, um, you know, they don't have contact with their friends. They're not going to school. They're constantly stuck at home. I work all the time. So they're on their devices. Like these kids are dying for something and they're wanting to see themselves with sugar and food as well. 
And so I'm sitting in a really difficult situation where, um, you know, one of my kids has put on a ton of weight and I feel like a horrific mother and I'm the sugar-free lady. And how is this happening? And the poor kids like started to see themselves with food and not necessarily sugar, but a lot of refined carbs. So I do sometimes keep sourdough bread in the house. And, um, you know, he's been overeating a ton of fruit. I have a ton, like, you know, I keep fruit, but that in itself is sugar. And because he has my genetic disposition, you know, there's, there's that thing that it doesn't work for him. Um, and so I do keep a sugar-free household. And when sugar does sneak its way into it, I also throw it in the trash can and I have to put like ketchup over it so that, you know, and somebody doesn't go in there oh, yeah. and eat it. Yep, and then yep. that's how sad it is. Like, and I'm just like busting myself here, but that's the measures that I have to go to, 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 to get rid of sugar. Um, but yes, the, I think the dream is to have a sugar-free household and allow my kids to have sugar when they go to kids' parties or when they go out or when we go out for dinner. And I hate letting them have soda. Like that's not something that I want them to have. I'd rather let them have like um, some food with, you know, that's digestible. That's not like this like liquid cocaine that just shoots into their little veins. Yeah, like Shaka has mentioned it before, but we have a huge issue with pediatric obesity right now. Yeah. Um, and a large part of it is because of that. And it's only going to get worse during the pandemic, right? Because kids are staying at home, they're way less active, and they're just eating more. Yeah. For me, when I'm when I just sit at home, especially when I was a kid, when I didn't go to school, I would just sit there and eat the whole day and play video games or whatever, you know, and that's hugely detrimental. It's really, really is. And I can see the incredibly negative effect it's having on my kids. Um, and I don't think we're the worst off. I cannot imagine how hard it must be for other people and other families who's, where the parents have to go to work and the kids have to stay home alone. And, you know, if, if there's not great quality food, like they don't have access to great quality, quality food, like it's really sad what's happening right now. Agreed. And I think one way to mitigate that is to start you know, to, the best we can um, is to get th these fitness communities and other communities to continue to go, whether it's even if they're Zoom doing Zoom calls, right? If they're like within some form of like exercise program or group class that they're doing, where it's just less, you know, sitting around by yourself and more interacting and more moving. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, this has actually been on my mind for a couple of like in the last couple of weeks, like, what can I do? Like, what can I do to make this better? What can I do to create a sense of community for my kids? What can I do to help them feel um, loved and connected and accepted and like not like search for these external pictures? Because the video game thing's huge. Like these kids are on Zoom like eight hours a day for school and then they play video games with, a, with their friends remotely. Like that's how they stay in touch. And so that's a big question. Like, what can I do? What can I do to... To, to be a better mother to my kids like what can I do to help them improve their health like and I, I you know I don't know I don't know yeah it's super I mean it's super challenging Amy you guys were locked down for probably the longest what have you been seeing people we're doing still locked down you guys are still so locked are, down. we're I mean, not allowed out we're not like we're not allowed to to work out at gyms our gyms taking place outside with like social distancing measures the kids have not been to school since we shut down in may i don't even remember what month it is anymore you know we have not left the house these kids have not left the house for the last eight months it's insane they have not been allowed to see their friends wow yeah we like just opened up some things and there's still a lot of restrictions and you know rules in place so um right. you know we'll see but yeah it's not been fun for anybody
Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And uh, I don't, it doesn't seem like it's going to let up anytime soon, but it's a new normal. It's a new way of being. And so we need to adjust and we need to figure out how to make it work. That's and why I, that's why I really like, oh, go ahead, Amy. No, I was saying that I think the one good thing that can come from this is that it, it, it shines a light on the importance of metabolic health. Yeah. And validates a lot of the things that, you know, we've been talking about for years, right. As a group anyway. Um, and now it's, it's actually, it's actually playing out. So, um, it's sort of a call to action for everyone to take a look at this, what they're eating, what they're doing, how their where their health is in for no, no other reason for, for infectious disease purposes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, as um, you mentioned, Karen, so you're getting the, you know, sugar-free revolution or the sugar-free, uh, the addiction course up and running again, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's huge. When we talked to Adaptive Training Academy a couple of weeks ago, their entire course is online now, right? And yeah. so it's, what can we do? This is the new normal. We need to push more content out to help more people and just get them plugged in, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've been, well, it's not that I'm working on it specifically on the course. I have other people doing it. Um, because I've had the course for years and I just took it down when I started working for CrossFit, but it's a really good course, not because I made it, but you know what I mean? Because it, it, it really does work. Like people found it incredibly useful and, and they changed their lives. So I'm really excited to set that back up. And then Shock and I actually wrote a kid's book, um, a sugar-free revolution kid's book. And so, <laughs> awesome. um, that should be coming on hopefully one day soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many exciting things happening. It's just you know how it is i mean you guys are doing the most incredible stuff like you two are like my favorite favorite people and i'm so privileged to have spent so much time with you and to really be able to see just how passionate you are about improving people's health like it's more than just being a physician like you guys really really care and that is amazing we appreciate that. And you connected us with a lot of amazing people, right? And we talk about that all the time. The benefit of having those in-person DDC sessions where we could all meet and talk about ideas like that is what kind of gave birth to this podcast, right? So it's been super helpful. It was amazing. But um, so I don't want to keep you all night. Um, I think <laughs> this was great. We literally covered a lot of amazing topics. Um, so where can people find you then? So you don't have a website. Where can people reach out? Okay, I will have a website, but I think probably the best place to find me is on Instagram, um, and it's Sugar Free Revolution. So find me on Instagram, Sugar Free Revolution. I'm actually really good at responding to messages. Just after All right, I guys. check it out. I'll link uh, Karen in the show notes. She's kicking addictions ass. So <laughs> check her out. Ask her any questions. Look for that course to come uh, up and running. Yes. Oh, I love you guys. Thank you. Me too, Karen. Yeah. <laughs>